0: and Ecclesiastes, and we thought it would be a good idea that before moving on to Philippians, the next book that we would like to look at, uh, that we would take about two weeks to talk about uh, deacons and elders uh, at this church. You know, right now we're in the process of, you know, nominating new deacons. Uh, We're also in the process of uh, both Eric and I being ordained as elders. Um, So we think right now would be a good opportunity to spend some time talking about deacons and elders and the purpose of the offices of the church, and uh, the qualifications as well, as, especially as we're talking about deacons. Uh, and so today, you'll notice our sermon, pa- or our text, our passage today, is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses eight through 13. And this is the section that talks about the qualifications of deacons. So we'll be talking about deacons today, and we'll be looking at this text together. So let's go ahead, we can stand together, uh, as we come to God's word, see is this better? Okay. <laughs> All right. So First Timothy chapter three verses eight through uh, eight through thirteen. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you. You may be seated. And let us go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord, and for this uh, time that we have to come to your word. God, I pray that you would help us as we uh, look at your word and we talk about deacons, and we pray that we would uh, come to know your church better, Lord, and your will for the church. So Father, we ask all of this in your son's name we pray, amen. Now, as I said, we have been, uh, we are talking about deacons today. Uh, for the next two weeks, uh, as a church, we will be thinking about who to nominate as deacons. And it's good to know, okay, if we're nominating deacons, uh, what is the purpose of deacons? What role do they serve the church? And also what sort of deacons does the church need? What are the qualifications of a deacon? Uh, What sort of things should I be thinking about and looking for as I'm thinking about who to nominate as a deacon? And so today we will be talking about that, but we want to remember one thing. We want to look to scripture to answer these questions. You know, Paul here is writing to Timothy, not as simply a fellow pastor, uh, giving advice on how his church might do things. What we have here is an apostle of Jesus Christ, sent with the authority of Jesus Christ to establish the new covenant church. Paul is writing to Timothy, not with advice, but with inspired instructions on how the church is to be governed. And so when we talk about Sola Scriptura, we believe that scripture teaches us and regulates all aspects of faith and practice. That includes the doctrine of sin, what we think about sin. That includes the doctrine of salvation, what we believe about how we are reconciled to God and forgiven. It includes the doctrine of end things, everything. But it also includes ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church. If we want to know how the church is to be run, how the offices are to be um, uh, run and instituted, we must go to the church to find out how to do so in a way that pleases God. We aren't free to make up things as we go along, but instead we look to the scriptures to see how God instructs us to structure his church. Now, before we really begin looking at what deacons are, a lot can be learned about the name itself. So the name deacon, it comes from the Greek word diakonos, which means servant. Now in Christianity, all are called to be servants. Being a servant is a major theme throughout all of scripture and in Christianity. When Jesus first calls his disciples, you know, he is bringing them the kingdom. They are seeing him as the Messiah, that son of David, who will be ushering in the kingdom of God. But the disciples have a certain image of what the kingdom is going to look like, and Jesus has to constantly correct them on their image or their vision of what the kingdom is going to be like. They imagine the kingdom of God being this great empire where they were going to follow the son of David, battling the Gentiles, casting down the nations, and establishing an empire that the world had never seen before to the disciples When they thought about the kingdom, they thought, Caesar might be pretty great, but wait until the world sees us. We are the right-hand man, or we are the right-hand men of the Messiah, the son of David. Wait until they see how great we are. Caesar will be nothing. And so constantly, they are arguing amongst themselves about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And they have this idea of greatness in their mind. And so Jesus has to oftentimes correct them. For example, in Luke chapter 22, verses 25 through 26, Jesus tells them, after they have been arguing about who's going to be the greatest, he says, "'The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them that are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the the greatest among you become the youngest.'" in the leader as the one who serves. In Mark chapter 9, verse 34 and 35, the same subject is being covered. It says they had argued with one another about who was to be the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And this follows the pattern of Jesus. No one is greater than their master. We shouldn't expect to have a greater reverence or a greater glory than what jesus has and in philippians chapter 2 verses 3 through 8 we see the pattern of jesus who is our master it says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves let each one of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so when we think about the pattern of greatness that is shown by Jesus Christ, we see a pattern of servanthood. The Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, who is worthy of all great honor and praise, he humbled himself and assumed a human nature, not only to be a human, not just to be a man, but to be a servant. And he allowed his own creation to spit on his face, to beat him, to strip him of his clothing, to mock him, and to crucify him. And he did that for us. And so the call of serving one another does not only apply to deacons, but it applies to all Christians. And so as we are thinking of nominating and electing deacons, let us first remember our own calling to be a servant. And then from that, let us look for those who are qualified to be servants in the church ordained to the office of deacon. And today, I would like us to look at Scripture and really see two things, two simple things. First, why the church has deacons, and second, what kind of deacons the church needs. So first, why does the church have deacons? Now, the office of deacon is one that arises out of a real practical need, and we see this in the early church, in the book of Acts. Uh, There in Acts chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, we can look there. In Acts chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 42 through 47, and we see some insight into how the early church lived amongst themselves, and how they viewed the faith, and how they viewed genuine, true faith. There it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and in the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. By the way, this is shortly following Pentecost, as the church has now been empowered by the holy spirit and has begun in the new testament and it says there an awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles they had unity of faith and worship we see this here they are continuing in the faith of the apostles in the apostles teaching they are meeting together they are breaking bread and the prayers probably referring to the psalms and singing here we see that they are worshiping together they have unity of faith But notice it doesn't end with unity of faith and unity of worship. It continues into another aspect of well. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now what we see here is that there was two elements of unity that they had. They had unity of faith, unity of worship, but also they had in some sense unity of goods, meaning that never amongst the community of believers was any believer to worry that they were not being cared for physically as well. Yes, there was a ministry of the word in the apostles' teaching, but there was also a ministry of service in caring for the people who had physical needs. Now, this isn't some form of, or some form of communism or you know, ideas of government, as some people may want to uh, use it to be. But what we have here is church members, not government, but church members who are voluntarily giving of themselves for those who have real and definite need. They are giving of their possessions to help out of love for those who are in need. What we see here is the church practicing living faith, the sort of living faith that James describes in James chapter 2. And notice also you have the same two things being unified. James chapter 2 verses 14 through 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, "Go in peace, be warmed and filled," without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. They didn't only share the same faith. They weren't only giving benedictions, but they were also helping when their brothers and sisters needed help. If they saw someone who was poorly clothed, if they saw someone in the church who was without food and without ability to provide for themselves, they didn't simply give them Bible verses. They didn't simply Tell them, God bless you, I'll be praying for you. Those would be good things, but notice, by themselves, that sort of faith is dead. It is useless. What good is it if you that, if you profess that faith, but do not have works of love to help your brothers and sisters? And so we see that in the early church. They have unity of faith, but that faith is completed with living works of love for one another. That is the true faith that the Holy Spirit gives. And that is what the church prospers with by having unity of faith and also service. However, eventually an issue arises. The church is still filled with sinners, and even our love will be imperfect. We often end up overlooking people in the church, even when we don't mean to. And we see this very shortly after this in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And this is the occasion for the institution of deacons. You can turn there if you like. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. There it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Right? So what you have here is you have these Hellenists, most likely Jews who are um, more you know, a Greek cultured, were outside of Israel generally speaking, um, or maybe even mixed with some Gentiles. But their widows were being neglected with the care of the church, whereas the Hebrew widows were being fed and cared for. And there was some oversight that was going on in the church. Um, not the good sort of oversight, but looking over those who were in the church. And so a solution is, uh, a solution uh, comes up here. In verse number 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set, or these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, a few things here. Uh, one thing that we notice is that there is a difference established between elders and deacons. Verses two through four, we have the apostles saying, It is not right or it is not fitting that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. And therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirits of wisdom, and we will appoint them for this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. And so here you have two different types of ministries. There is a ministry of the tables, and then there is a ministry of the word. We see here that deacons are appointed to the ministry of the tables. They are to serve the physical needs of the congregation. They are to be in charge, given oversight over the church, so that we don't have situations like the Hellenists who are being looked over. These deacons have it as their ordained duty to look over the members of the church and see that everyone is being taken care of. At the same time, the elders, who are the uh, successors of the apostles with the ministry of the word and teaching and preaching, they are appointed to the spiritual needs of the members especially in teaching and in the administration of word and sacrament. And so we see here that there is a distinction between the elders and the deacons. Now, often these offices get muddled, and usually that causes problems in the church. There are times where you have um, a pastor with very, uh, very little deacons, almost no deacons, and he ends up taking upon all of the needs of the church. Uh, maybe you have a pastor who is very overworked and he is trying to prepare sermons and he's trying to study the word and preach the word, but he is also very busy with day-to-day things in the church. Uh, I remember there was a big controversy um, a few years ago about many pastors being found out that they were plagiarizing sermons or they were finding sermons online or getting sermons from old theologians and simply using other people's sermons. And when they were confronted about it, a, you know, a large excuse was, we just don't have the time. You know, Every single day I'm in meetings, I'm visiting people, I'm making phone calls, I'm dealing with day-to-day budget things of the church, and I simply don't have time to spend hours each day in study and in preparation. And many people spoke to this saying, this is an area where the church should have deacons. This is an area where the pastor is doing both works. He is trying to be a minister of the word, and he is trying to also be a minister of the tables. Uh, And so we see there an area where it could get muddled and it causes problems for the church. Um, Another common situation is where you have the reverse. Maybe you have one pastor and many deacons, but what ends up happening is that the deacons end up being basically a session of elders. And the deacons run the church, and eventually what happens is you don't have any elders, or I'm sorry, you don't have any deacons. The physical needs of the congregation are being overlooked because all the deacons are basically being elders and they are running the church in a way that the pastors should be doing. And so we see here that the church needs both. The church needs both the ministers who are administering the word and sacrament and spiritually teaching and applying the word of God to the people's lives. But the church also needs deacons who can look after the people who can make sure that there aren't people who are being overlooked, and they could minister to the physical needs of the congregation as well, making sure both are being taken care of. Now, I'm noticing that my manuscript is much longer than it usually is, and I don't want us to be here all day. Um, so maybe suffice it to say at this point that we see here that uh, this is the purpose of deacons, right? Especially going along with the elders, that the church needs both spiritual feeding, but also physical feeding. The church needs spiritual nourishment and also physical nourishment as well. And so we want to have deacons who are able to do that. But the question we must ask ourselves now is, what kind of deacons does the church need? Now again, let me reiterate, we want to have a biblical ecclesiology, meaning we want to have a biblical doctrine of the church. Whatever we believe about every other area of faith and practice, we want to ground in Scripture, and we want to do the same thing about the church. You know, if we were to get up here and to teach you something concerning sin and salvation that wasn't based on the Bible's teaching, that would be a problem. That would be an unfaithful minister of the word. And in the same way, when we talk about how the church should be run and who we ordain to be elders and deacons, the same thing applies. It has to be grounded in Scripture in order for it to be faithful Christian practice. And so what does God say about the kind of deacons that the church needs? Now, to do this, let us go to our text that you find there in your bulletins, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Here we have a list of biblical qualifications for deacons. And I think it would be good for us to simply walk through this list and talk about the qualifications that scripture gives us so that we can be thinking about who to nominate as deacons. We want to be thinking who in the church fits these categories so that we can nominate them to be deacons and so be faithful to God. So here in our text, verses eight, nine, and 10, they refer first to the conduct and spiritual maturity of the deacon. They must hold to the faith according to their confession and they must live a life according to that faith. It says here, deacons likewise, continuing from the previous, uh, the previous section that spoke about bishops or elders, it says deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And so first, we see that a deacon must be dignified. This is sometimes translated as being grave or understood as being serious. There is a seriousness that must be there for anyone who is holding a church office. Now, this doesn't mean that they must be always serious, someone who can never laugh or someone who can never be lighthearted in any sense, but it means that there must be a certain level of seriousness of seriousness when it comes to the things of God. If they're going to be serving in the church, they must have a certain level of gravity to those spiritual things. They must view the church not as just a collection of friends or just a group of people that they can use, rather there must be a dignity there, a certain amount of seriousness. The next line says not double-tongued. This refers to a person who says one thing to one person, but then maybe says another thing to another person, someone you can never trust to be consistent. But there needs to be a consistency in order to promote unity in the church. Deacons are often going between person to person, trying to meet the needs of different people. But if they are one way to one person and then another way to another person, double-tongued, never consistent, then this results in slanders. This de- this results in Divisions and gossiping. These things are difficult when they are done by church members, but they are especially problematic when done by those in leadership or leadership positions in church offices. And so we want to be thinking about this as we are looking for those who can be ordained. It goes on to say that a deacon must not be addicted to much wine. Now, this does not refer to complete abstinence of alcohol. Uh, Some of these sections may require more explanation. I think this is one that might require uh, more explanation. Uh, Teetotaling, or the idea that alcohol is always sinful, is a minority position in the church. And from a historical perspective, completely indefensible, especially when speaking about the Lord's Supper. Uh, And the reason this is important is because we want Scripture to not be divided. Scripture cannot uh, cannot be broken. And we cannot put one aspect of scripture against another aspect of scripture. In fact, if you were to go to Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 6, we see a prophecy about how God is going to consummate the kingdom. And it says, on this mountain, this is Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of morrow, Of aged wine well refined. Now, notice whose feast is this? This is the feast of the Lord. On the last day, as he consummates his kingdom, he will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and a feast of well aged wine. Now, if the Lord himself will invite us to drink well aged wine, it is a very wrong thing to condemn it and by so condemn the actions of God himself. And so we must take this very seriously we do not want to put scripture against scripture essentially calling god a sinner and essentially calling jesus a sinner when he establishes his lord's supper using not uh, not pasteurized grape juice but using the wine of the day as it would have been and so when we look at scripture we see that many times wine is called a blessing and that it is not to be completely avoided Especially in regards to the Lord's Supper. However, scripture is filled with passages condemning its abuse, and these must be taken very seriously as well. As gluttony is to food, so drunkenness is to alcohol. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 32 warns us who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Again, this cannot be pitted against other passages that speak of God Himself giving us wine, but it must serve as a warning of its abuse. A deacon must not be addicted to much wine. As described, for those people who tarry long over wine. A deacon must have self-control and sobriety that allows him to carry about his office in a healthy way. We need deacons who are not drunkards, who are not without self-control, but who are able to minister to the church with a level of sobriety and control. And so we want to keep that in mind as we are thinking about this. The next thing it says also extremely important not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, again, this is especially important. The deacons at Covenant are the ones responsible for gathering, counting, and recording the the offerings that are given. Our process here uh, is that when counting the offering, there are two deacons present. Uh, After the offerings are given, we take the uh, money and the givings uh, to the back office, and two deacons are present. Uh, The offering is counted first by one deacon and then again by another deacon independently so that um, both amounts can be checked and that the totals can be checked amongst each other. Uh, When the entire process is done, both deacons sign off on the final totals to make sure that it has been witnessed. Uh, There are some weeks where, you know, people are traveling or sick and maybe there's only one deacon and even in that situation, We always try to have another member of the church who can come in as a witness for that day. And that's important because we believe that even though deacons should be trusted, there should also be accountability when it comes to the church's money. It is very disappointing when we hear stories of these big churches who are not lacking for deacons, they're not lacking for people who can serve, But we find out that there are issues where money is being stolen from the church. Where there is no accountability, whether that is maybe a deacon or maybe it's the pastor of the church who is secretly taking money from the church and keeping it for themselves. These are those who are greedy for dishonest gain and are not qualified to hold the office of deacon or elder as well. And so this is connected to the dignity or gravity that is mentioned earlier. If someone is ordained to be a deacon, they must be serious in that they would never desire to steal from the church. When thinking about who to nominate as a deacon, remember that they are going to be responsible with the church's money, the money that you have given, the money that you intend to be put to use for the worship in the ministry of the church. And so when we're thinking about deacons, make sure that those you would like to nominate are those you can trust with the church's money. We do have system in place, or systems that have accountability, whether that's you know, two people witnessing the counting or whether we have a budget community or a committee as well, but still we want the deacons to be qualified in a sense that even if there were no witnesses, they would have the dignity and honor to respect the church of God In a way that would be honest now the next qualification as we're moving through this list we see that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience now when Paul uses the term mystery of the faith he is referring to one's doctrinal confession for example in first Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 he says great indeed we confess or great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now this section here is a short creedal statement confessing the true doctrine or true teaching of Jesus. And so a deacon must hold to the mystery of the faith. A deacon must have good and true doctrine concerning scriptural teaching, what is orthodox and right to believe. Now, one thing connected to this, however, is that you'll notice that when comparing the qualifications for a deacon and an elder, for the elders or for the bishops, it is required that they be able to teach. However, when looking at the qualifications of a deacon, it is not required that they be able to teach. And that is because they have different ministries, as we saw in Acts chapter 6. While the deacons have the ministry of tables, the elders have the ministry of the word. And so while deacons are not required to teach, we still see here that they must hold to the mystery of the faith. They must be orthodox in their belief and in their understanding of the scriptures in the gospel. Now here at Covenant, uh, we do have some deacons that also lead small groups, you might notice. So maybe you're wondering, well, if deacons aren't supposed to teach, why do they lead small groups? And it should be noticed here that even in our small groups, a different sort of Uh, intention is being made Um, in our small groups really the point there is to discuss the faith not really teach it authoritatively as an elder or a bishop might do Um, during our small groups that is really the time where we are sharing the faith and talking about the faith and a reason we want to have a deacon in each group is that while we are sharing the faith and talking about our lives this gives the deacons a chance to maybe hear prayer requests or to hear issues that are going on in the lives of the people so they can have a better understanding of the members' lives and a better understanding of how they might be able to serve. And so remember that even in small groups that you have deacons in those small groups that you can bring your issues to, your problems to, so that they can be aware of issues that might be in the church, places where we can serve. But even still, we remember that service in the church is never disconnected from the doctrine of the church. In the most extreme sense, we could not have an unbeliever, a professing atheist hold a church office. But even um, as we move towards true orthodoxy, um, deacons should still have a understanding, a clear conscience and a good understanding of the scriptures and of true doctrine. Now, lastly in this section, It says, and let them first also be tested and serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Simply put, a deacon must not be unknown. They must be known to be qualified and to be blameless, both in their understanding of the gospel and also in their walk. This doesn't refer to being sinless, but it means that in order to hold this public office, they must have no outstanding sin or sin problem before the eyes of men that would disqualify them from a place of leadership. Now I think this section calls us not only to think about who we ordain, but also to pray for those who are ordained. Because we know that Satan hates churches that have qualified elders and qualified deacons. The church needs elders and the church needs deacons to be healthy. And if Satan wants the church to be unhealthy, he will go after those deacons and elders. So remember when looking at this passage, not only look for qualified people you can nominate, but also pray for those who have been nominated and who serve because we want to be praying for the health of the church. Now, moving on from this section, there is a transition there in verses 11 and 12. It says here, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. Now, this section needs a special look because of the word here that is translated as wives. Now, if you have an ESV translation, you might notice that there is a small footnote there um, next to the word wife. Uh, and you notice that if you look down at the bottom with that footnote, it says wives or women. Now, this is because the Greek word here, gune, can be translated either as women or as wife. And throughout scripture, it is translated either as woman or as wife, depending on the context. Now, you might wonder, well, wait a minute. What is my conservative, trusted translation doing with this progressive ideology? Is it trying to say that we can have women elders and women deacons and different things like that? But it's not that. And the reality is that while the church has understood the office of bishop or elder, as being rightly held only by called and qualified men with near universal agreement throughout the history of the church, there has been more variation in how the church has understood deacons and deaconesses. And I think it's important here that we talk about that here in this section. Paul is very explicit that the office of a teaching elder or an elder in the church is to be held by qualified men. When Paul speaks about women not being allowed or permitted to teach in the church. He is talking about that authoritative teaching office. And there Paul argues from creation. He talks about how God has intentionality when he creates men and women. And he goes there saying that God creates Adam in a leadership position and Eve as a helper fit for him. Or as you may have heard in other ways, a help meet for him. Now the office of a deacon is not a teaching office but instead is one of service and support. And that has caused there to be more discussion. It hasn't been as explicit as it has been about elders. On top of that, this passage here has also been debated. Now there are usually three interpretations, sometimes four, on how to translate this word here, gune, whether translated wife or women. One way it is translated is wives, as we see in the ESV or in other translations. Another one could be female deacons, the deaconesses. So likewise, the women who are also deacons. Um, A third category could be the unordained women who assist the deacons. So in a sense saying the deacons must be like this and also their women assistants should be like this as well. Um, There's some other um, people who interpret this as just speaking of women in generally or women generally um, but kind of disconnected from uh, the office of deacon. Uh, it's less common. But if we look throughout church history, we find very prominent figures speaking of this passage in different ways. So for example, we have John Chrysostom, uh, one of the very famous preachers of the early church. They're in the fourth century. And he says on this section, some have thought that this is said of women generally, but it is not so, for why should he introduce anything about women to interfere with his subject? Makes sense. He is speaking of those who hold the rank of deaconess. Now his position here is not universal. So we see here that John Chrysostom, a very prominent, um, he's not progressive, he's not liberal, he's a very prominent teacher in the fourth century. And he views this passage as talking about deaconesses, women who hold in some way an office of a deacon. But again, his position is not universal. There is a very famous and well-known commentator on the Pauline epistles, um, who we call uh, Ambryosiaster. Uh, It was thought before to be Ambrose, but eventually it was seen it was not Ambrose, and there's a whole discussion there. Um, But he was a very prominent writer in the fourth century, and he says on this passage, Paul here does not refer to women deacons since these are not allowed in the church. It is heretics who have such persons. This reference is to women in general. So we see here in the fourth century, uh, you have a prominent, uh, most likely a bishop, as many people believe, in the fourth century, and then also John Chrysostom, a very prominent bishop in the fourth century. Ambryosiaster is saying, we do not ordain women to deacons, heretics do that, this is women in general. And then you have John Chrysostom saying, this isn't women in general, this is about deaconesses. And so we see that there is division here. Um, and church history is often that way, never given to the idea that the church was always united on everything, until the Reformation messed all that up. What we see here is very prominent bishops disagreeing about ecclesiology. And none of them asked to roam here. Anyways, um, but both prominent figures have contrary interpretations. Now, not only in this passage do we find um, disputing, but also in Romans chapter 16, verse number 1. Here, Paul is talking about a woman named Phoebe in the church. And Paul says here in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in, I believe it's Sancria. Now, the ESV has another footnote here over the word servant, saying, or deaconess. Now, the reason here is because there's another issue with translation that makes this a little bit tricky, because the word deacon is also the word for servant. And so the question is, does the word here refer to an official office of a deaconess, Or is it referring generally to a servant in the church? For example, Paul also calls himself a servant in the church, but he is not calling himself a deacon as opposed to an apostle. Perhaps he is speaking of Phoebe in the same way. Maybe the same way that he calls himself a servant, not talking about the office, he is calling Phoebe a servant, not speaking about an office. Because serving in the church is something that all Christians are to do and something we can commend one another for, regardless of whether we are an ordained deacon or simply a deacon, a servant. Now for myself, along with many other uh, reformed Christians and also church historians, just looking throughout the history of the church and how this is talked about, especially in light of scripture, um, I believe that scripture itself teaches only about ordaining male deacons Though throughout church history, there have been many occasions of non-ordained deaconesses and that that has been understood in different different ways. So to explain this, many times when the term deaconess is discussed by church historians and talking about these controversies, there is a distinction that is being made. Many of them mention that, yes, while the church had deaconesses, these were not a sacramental order. Uh, these are a non-sacramental order, or a non-sacramental office. Now, we don't consider ordination to be a sacrament, as it is not a sign and seal of God's covenant, but we can see what is being talked about here. They would be saying that, yes, you had these maybe women who were partnered with the deacons, and maybe they were called deaconesses, but they did not have hands laid upon them. They were not ordained to an official office of the church, this was you know, what we may think of as being a Sunday school teacher or a nursery worker or maybe a woman who was you know, established to help in other different ways. Um, in fact, when we look at the duties often attributed to deaconesses, uh, we see why it would make sense. Uh, these were often women who worked alongside deacons in order to prepare women for baptism. You know, When people were baptized, they were often baptized uh, without clothes. And so it wouldn't be fitting for one of the male deacons to go and help one of these women. Instead, you would have women in the church who partnered with the deacons to help in this service. You would also have issues where maybe a woman is living by herself, or maybe a woman has some bodily issue that is more suited for a woman to go and be of service than one of the men deacons. And so it makes sense that in places where it wouldn't be fitted for a male deacon or a male servant, to go help, um, there would be women sent as an extension of the deacons. And so much of the Western church especially fell on this side, viewing the ordained deacons to be restricted to men and non-ordained deaconesses to be working alongside of them, though not sacramentally ordained or officially ordained. So I know that that's a lot of information. Uh, Maybe if you have questions on that, you can come and talk to me about it later. Um, I think these are really good questions to have, especially as we are talking about who to ordain. But as we have said, we want all of our offices of the church to be guided by scripture, not only church history. Church history can be extremely helpful, but it must be grounded in scripture. And so when nominating deacons as an official church office, at Covenant, we believe that this office should be rightly held by men according to scripture's teaching. I don't believe in our text today that we see Paul here speaking of women being ordained to the office. Um, In fact, if we look at the language of Acts chapter 6 verse 3, it limits the diaconate office to men when it says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint for this duty. And it is for those men that they lay hands on and officially ordained to be deacons. I think also in our text here that it is far more likely that verse 11 is leading into the subject of the deacon's household. So remember, we talked about how gune can be translated either as uh, women in general, or it can be translated as wife. Well, we see here that in verse number 12, we have gune again. And by the context here, it is most definitely speaking of wife. And so rather than a random change to discussing deaconesses only to return to a deacon in his household, I believe it is far more consistent or far more likely that this is a consistent transition into the the discussion of a deacon's household. So what you have here is the apostle saying, you know, a deacon must be like this in his own faith and walk. Also, their wives must be like this and let a deacon be the husband of one wife. And let his household be like this. And I think there you have a more natural trans, uh, transition from a deacon's personal walk into the deacon's household structure and, whether, and how his wife and children are. Now, one thing this does remind us um, to be thinking about is that when we talk about who to nominate as deacons, we must look at their wives as well if they are married. Um, if you were to look at other sections, we notice that it is not required that the wives of elders be any certain way, but rather it is required that the wives of deacons be a certain way. And there's sort of a reason for this. Uh, When we talk about pastors and their wives, the wives of pastors, uh, at least should not, uh, share a role in the teaching ministry that the pastor has. You know, if a pastor is a minister of the word that doesn't mean that sometimes his wife is also a minister of the word. Um, if a pastor is, you know, consecrating the sacraments or baptizing people, that doesn't mean that his wife can sometimes also administer the Lord's Supper or baptize people. Uh, the wife of a pastor is not really a, a helper in his ministry in administering the word. However, the wives of deacons often work alongside of the deacons in the ministry of service. Um, and this is very similar to what has happened throughout church history and even here at Covenant. At Covenant, we do work alongside many of the women in the church in a way that is similar to how the church has often seen unordained deaconesses. Uh, in fact, if I can use that term without much confusion, at this church, we do have many unofficially ordained deaconesses. There are women in this church who have you know who play great prominent roles in serving in this church. And oftentimes, you know, when the deacons are meeting together, think about how to serve, there are certain women who come to mind that we know that we often work with um, who can fit needs that maybe would be better suited to them rather than us. And oftentimes, this ends up being our wives. So so thank you to the wives of the deacons at Covenant and the many women um, who are an extension of the serving ministry here at this church. Now, again, I know that that's a lot of information, And if you do have questions about that, please come and talk to me. I would be very happy uh, to talk to you more about uh, what scripture speaks about on this issue. But all of these things are practical ways that we can be thinking about uh, when talking about who to ordain and nominate as deacons. Now, I know we've gone on for a long time, uh, and I want us to conclude by remembering once again the purpose of deacons. They are to lead by example what it means to be a servant of Christ. All Christians are meant to be servants, but deacons are especially ordained to oversee and lead in the service of the church. There in verse 13, it says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There is a benefit to those deacons who serve well, and there is a benefit to the church as well. As those deacons serve well, serve faithfully. And so there is also great benefit to all Christians who serve as deacons or deaconesses in the church. Ordained and non ordained, we are all called to be servants. In John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, we see Jesus show us who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. It says there in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, Now before the feast of the Passover, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper, and he laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. Then in verse 12, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. You call me Lord and teacher as if I am above you. And you are right. I am your teacher. I am your Lord. I am above you. And then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And so if the Son of God serves us, especially in his incarnation and in humbling himself and assuming a human nature to give his life to be a life of a servant, placing himself at the hands of sinful men to be our sacrifice, to forgive us of our sins, we ought not to think of ourselves as deserving a higher honor than him, as if we in the church are to have our feet washed rather than washing the feet of others. We shouldn't think that we should be served rather than us serving one another. And so as we serve, or as Jesus serves, we serve. And as we are thinking of who to nominate as deacons, let us not forget our own diaconal calling to be servants to one another in the church. And let us pray that God helps us in this. Let's go to him now in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the blessings that you have given to your church. Father, Lord, I want to thank you for the deacons that we have at this church. Lord, I want to thank you for the wives of the deacons that we have at this church. Lord, I want to thank you for all those in the church who serve, whether they are ordained to be a deacon or not. Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit who is at work in this church and working in the hearts of many of the members to serve and to be a blessing to the members here. God, I pray that you would continue to be a blessing to this church, that you would help us as we ordain and nominate um, new deacons. I pray that you would uh, guide our members and give us wisdom in who we bring to this office. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless covenant. Father, I pray that this would be a place where we worship you rightly and love you with all of our hearts. And we pray that through worship and through your word, we would continue to be made more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, that we can honor you in obedience to your law, and in love and gratitude in all that we do. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.